Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name's Edwin Davis and joining me this week through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Well, it's going 50% Pfizer and feeling fine. Thank you, Ed. Yay! Um, the, <laughs> the downside of a particular variant being uh, virulent in every sense of the word in my area is that there is a kind of rollout in terms of the Scottish government trying to get the vaccine out in these parts. And yet it's still harder than it should be. My actual experience was amazing in terms of getting that appointment in the first place was unnecessarily tricky. But I did that and I bought a new phone. I got a fair phone. So it's all um, coming up Millhouse, I think, is the, uh, is the correct parlance. How are you, Ed? Uh, I'm good. I, as a fully vaccinated person, finally got the chance to uh, make use of that power um, by going to a movie <gasps> for the first time since February of 2020. Jesus. Which uh, was lovely. Uh, the film I ended up seeing as the first film back was uh, News of the World, the Tom Hanks movie directed by Paul Greengrass, where he plays a man who kind of like travels around different parts of Texas reading people the news. It's kind of like a theatrical performance. And uh, he has to take this young girl who's uh, had been kidnapped what kidnapped and raised by you know the native american tribes in the area and then her family have been killed and so he kind of like is reluctantly kind of opts to take her to the only family she has left and it's a good solid movie i think hanks is great in it the the actress playing the young girl is really terrific and it's kind of a nice vignette heavy movie where you know they're traveling from place to place and meeting all these different characters uh who are all played by like terrific character actors who you're always delighted to see show up like elizabeth marvell <laughs> and um ray mckinnon from uh deadwood and uh latterly uh creating uh rectify um like they they you know they'll all show up for like a scene or two and then go on to something else and and it was really really terrific but just on a kind of bigger like level or a higher level that's separate from just like was this movie good it just felt really nice to be seeing a movie in a communal space again after a year and a change of only watching stuff on you know my tv in my flat it was nice to be surrounded by people it was nice having that artificial social pressure to have your phone turned off and to not look at it uh, because as, as try as I might to not look at my phone when I watch stuff at home, it's very hard to stay totally disconnected. So suddenly having that thing where you're, you know, kind of like covered in darkness and forced to just engage with the movie in front of you, you know, on its own terms and the terms of the cinema um, was really nice. Uh, it was even nice watching the trailers for some truly terrible looking <laughs> movies that uh, are coming out in the week's head. Uh, I... I saw this uh, in a theatre that caters to an older crowd. So they tend to show a lot of comedies about old people getting their grooves back and things like of that nature, which generally do not turn out to be good movies. <laughs> and there were a few of those. Um, they also had a movie called Dream Horse was being advertised where Tony Collette plays a Welsh person, um, oh, oh. which looks like it could be... F okay. looks like it could be fine. Um, but... <laughs> Okay, yeah. yeah. No, I love Tony Collette, uh, but... Oh. <laughs> yeah, but like she, she looks like she's having a good time and Damien Lewis is in it as well. You know, it's got all these people, but it's very much in the full Monty, kinky boots, kind mm -hmm. of like small town kind of gets it together to, you know, try and save themselves or whatever. And, oh, they're all lovely, you know. <laughs> it's kind of like all those things where you watch and you think this seems like a just a very nice genial thing based on a real on a true story that you know doesn't particularly amount to much but you know will be very successful as a stage show in years to come no doubt no. Um, although probably difficult to do it with the horse maybe they can just borrow some of the war horse horses like some of those have got to be retired solid puppets 
Solid topic. <laughs> I'm fascinated to know, Ed, if you can tell me a little bit more about like you were saying, like you know, a communal experience again, and I and I mm-hmm. second screen horrendously. Um, yeah, and have done this whole time at home, and I'm not exactly sure when I will be able to go into a cinema again, but hopefully not for too long. But what was it like? Did it feel like there were a lot of people there? Did did it feel in any way busy? I mean, I'm guessing you're still sort of social distancing. Maybe did you have to wear a mask? I just I'm fascinated in in terms of the details. Uh, didn't have to wear a mask in this particular cinema. Um, the Rules about masks and social distancing in Florida recently got kind of like ended by our governor, who's not a great guy. Um, mm. And in in general, um, although people, but on a county by county level, it basically depends on what the county wants you to do. And also based on a business by business level. So like, even though there's no mask mandate or social distancing anymore, like if you go to like when i go grocery shopping in the orlando area usually there'll be a sign saying you know please you know even though you don't have to wear a mask we would prefer it if you did um and that sort of thing and this um cinema basically just didn't have any of that it's like people were milling around without masks on but it's also in an area where i think like 80 percent of people in the county have been vaccinated so like there's a pretty like yeah every i think most people kind of feel pretty safe being around because you know the chances are that there won't be that many unvaccinated people around anyway so it was very i wouldn't say it was massively busy i'd say that the, the screen we were in was i don't know like 15 people or something in a fairly small screen but everyone kind of distanced themselves out just naturally because uh, also it's not assigned seating you just kind of sit wherever you want but everyone just by force of habit, I think, just, you know, kept two or three seats between everyone and everyone was kind of like, just naturally spaced themselves out, like what everyone seemed comfortable with. So it all felt kind of very normal and and safe um, for, you know, uh, my own personal kind of like definition of what, what safe is, which is that, you know, I'm vaccinated, I feel fine going most places without a mask, but uh, I will happily put one on if that's the requirement of the establishment. And in this case, they were just like, you know, whatever goes, goes. Um, it was strange, though, because like the cinema that I went to is one that, you know, hadn't been to a while. And they have kind of embraced alternate ways of generating money. So what they've done is they have turned their foyer into a comedy club, which, which is what? kind of... Not- yeah so it's kind of weird like you walk in through the doors and previously you know you had a big kind of open foyer with like a few tables where people could sit you know while they were waiting for movies to finish or whatever and now it's just kind of like nope there's a stage in the middle and there's kind of like a black curtain that you then have to walk through in order to go and watch your movies and it's very strange i i assume that this must have been the use they've been putting it to to keep it open when they couldn't show movies and so now they've just kept it going because presumably it's been reasonably successful and popular and people were like ordering food and stuff it was it was very weird they've done a lot it seems to try and make the most of you know a bad situation and it'll be interesting interesting to see how long that continues once you know more movies start opening and bigger movies start opening and you start getting bigger crowds who maybe won't be uh particularly fond of having to crawl past all of these tables of people uh laughing at open micers or whatever i mean laughing at open micers is um a rarity in itself so good on them (laughs) so we'll go on to the news for this week and it's a fairly quiet week, but um, certainly a news story that uh, was all over my Twitter feed this week was the uh, debut of the trailer for Dear Evan Hansen, the adaptation of the hugely successful Broadway musical from a few years ago, uh, directed by Stephen Chbosky, and which got a lot of um, attention for not the best reason, which is that everyone made fun of Ben Platt, who plays Evan Hansen and is the and who was a star on stage as well, and who is meant to be like a teenager. I think the character is like 16, 17 years old in the movie. And um, he does not look 16 or 17 (laughs) Um, because it's been a few years since he played that role on stage. You know, he's in his late 20s now. And so everyone just kind of like saw him playing a teenager and immediately, you know, started posting 
pictures from Wet Hot American Summer or Steve Buscemi from that one's for the Rock joke. And on one level, I think, you know, it's it's uh, a little mean <laughs> to make fun of him, even though, as I say, like, I did joke that he was the second choice after Hal Holbrook turned them down. Um, but on another level, like, it's just... I think um, the fault of the producers for putting him in that position of just deciding, yes, we have to cast you in this role, even though you have aged out of it and you're the only person, I think, from the original production that we're bringing over because everyone else in the movie is like Amy Adams and Julianne Moore and Caitlin Deaver, you know, like all these people who are like stars for other things. So it kind of feels on one level, like the producers have kind of put him into this awkward situation where he try had to try and make himself look as young as possible. And just, you know, as, as someone who has always looked quite young myself and who uh, was carded when trying to buy drinks well into my late 20s, <laughs> um, you know, it comes to all of us, at some point you will hit that kind of like crest where people look at you and say yeah you're definitely not a teenager anymore you are you know you are an adult and um yeah i think ben ben platt unfortunately for him and just like the ribbing that he has taken online this week he he seems to have crested that hill yeah i think it's a weird mix isn't it because he's also in the running for an egot if (laughs) this becomes viable for an oscar i've mainly sort of fallen in with uh, Kaylee Donaldson's hesitance of Dear Evan Hansen as a property within itself. It's like, this is, I mean, I know problematic gets thrown around a lot, but it's like, this is not maybe great. I still haven't seen it. I'm not massively keen on the film. It looks quite glee-ish to me. And I think it's quite mm-hmm. telling that, um, and I know I may be slightly biased because I know a lot of people involved, but the trailer for Everybody's Talking About Jamie dropped as well yeah. in the same week and it's yeah. like mm, okay i feel like there might be a little bit more in this than the kind of i think it's just from what i can gather from dear evan hansen is that it grasps at a lot of really big topics and yet from possibly the worst perspective without <laughs> the mm-hmm. best sense of nuance mm-hmm. so it's not even just that ben platt looks you know horrendously miscast it it just feels very superficial right in the same Mm, way that like i don't know in in the same way that like i i remember the first season of glee i loved it i had Mm -hmm. i had the soundtrack Mm -hmm. and everything um but then it just became very twisted and i think it's hard to sort of see something that is a musical that's being adapted to film while still essentially having all of the hallmarks of a musical. And from what I can remember from what I saw on Twitter was a lot of people saying like, why would you not just record the Broadway version? You know, we have like Mm. Hamilton has absolutely solidified that model of people want to get as close to a live show as possible, not just because of the pandemic. It's like, well, just let people see the thing in its kind of original form and I'm not against adaptations but from what I can tell this is just a weird kind of spliced version of the two and I think it's going to be a lesser version of a live show and a lesser version of a film for it. Mm. And I think also one of the problems that becomes really apparent with with that casting is that there is a, a level of artificiality allowed in theatre that you can get away with on film, but you have to like really commit to it. Like if you are making something where you're like, yeah, this is like a, a complete like fantastical thing. Like you know, Wet Hot American Summer, like is obviously the comedy example of this. But you know, like it, that those that movie and then the subsequent series works because they're committing to the idea. Like yeah, these are adults playing children. Like you know, get over it. Um, and. I think um, the problem, at least based on the trailer for the for the movie, is that like they're adhering to a certain literalness that I think makes Ben Platt's kind of like now ill-fitting casting um, look even more egregious. Whereas you know if they were just doing the stage show again, it's like yeah okay sure like I don't need to buy that this guy's 17 because everything's so artificial anyway and you know like he could play that role on stage well into his 40s and it would still kind of make sense as long as his voice holds out um although he should probably you know 
at that point he probably would be good to kind of like step aside you know he's not topple you know he can't just kind of keep playing that role forever there is probably a limit but um yeah there's just like a level of artifice that you're allowed in theater that for movies you you kind of really need to strive for and if they're going for something where everything in this movie kind of seems pretty much down to earth and realistic but also this guy sings a lot and also he's meant to be a teenager and he clearly looks like he's in his like mid to late 20s then that's going to be something that people really notice and it's going to be distracting in a way that wouldn't be if you were just watching a film version of the play in the same way that you know to go to Hamilton again like you buy that Lin-Manuel Miranda or Anthony Ramos you know when I saw it on stage you buy that he is someone who is playing the same character over you know a 20 or 30 year span of his life Mm. he doesn't they don't do a huge much to change it but you know you can buy okay we're seeing this guy over a huge span of time uh because it's a it's a theatrical production and they're just kind of like moving along and just carrying the story and I don't feel like that's something you can really get away with with something like Dear Evan Hansen, where the character's meant to be a teenager for the whole thing, and if you don't cast an actual teenager or someone who, like, reads as a teenager, then, you know, that becomes a problem. And as well, you know, I just mentioned them both, like, but that's the reason why Anthony Ramos is the lead in the In the Heights movie and not Lin-Manuel Miranda. Because, mm-hmm. like, Anthony Ramos is, you know, in his late 20s. He's the age that that character is meant to be. And Lin-Manuel Miranda is now in his 40s. So he's playing a different character in the movie than what he played on stage. You know, it just makes sense that you, at a certain point, you look at these characters and say, what's best for the story? And does it mean that, you know, you cast a different actor in that role who can still do it, but will be perhaps a little more believable? And also it's just... It's just kind of a weird thing to think, oh, this guy played the role on stage. We have to have him in the movie. Yeah. Because, like, so few people would have seen it on stage compared to who will presumably see them film. And then it's like, well, then you film the version of him in the Broadway play slash musical so that his performance is captured and then film it's it's someone different you know and, and i do think mm. i can't help but be like a bit cynical in terms of like i think they're pushing for the egot and trying to kind of sway the academy that way and you're right like yeah. there is something within the contract of theater that just in terms of the sheer mechanics of it the audience is further away and people are their real life size there is no such thing mm. as a close-up. There is no such thing as people being filmed in a way that they are suddenly presented as being 10 feet high in just their face, you know? So you you, you can get away with a lot of that. And, and theatre welcomes projection. Theatre welcomes a mm. sense of the camp in a way that, like, film struggles with to this day, I think, still. And... I don't mean that in any way saying that either is derogatory or better. I'm just saying they're different mediums. And it seems like a fundamental flaw of misunderstanding in how Dear Evan Hansen should have been transferred to the screen. Mm, Yeah. So we'll go on to the other kind of big story this week, uh, arguably more seismic than the release of Dear Evan Hansen (laughs) trailer, (laughs) which was the news that AT&T are spinning out... Uh, Warner Media, the kind of banner term for Warner Brothers and Turner and CNN and all the things that they they bought several years ago when they bought uh, Warner Media, and merging it with Discovery, which you know it's the uh, you know it has a whole bunch of other kind of like cable stuff all wrapped into that one. And this is interesting partly because you know AT and T three years ago I think it was when they bought Warner Media, they kind of like swaggered in. And we're like, yeah, we're going to disrupt everything. We're going to like completely change the film industry. And they kind of came in in much the same way as like AOL did in the 90s when they previously bought Warner Media. And much like that venture, you know, pretty much right away, uh, you know, or in a very short period of time, they've looked in and said, yeah, we've got billions of dollars in debt. We need to get rid of this. And they have, you know, now essentially, I think they're still partly involved. It's going to be like a new venture between the two organizations, but they are not kind of going to be directly controlling Warner Media as they have for like the last few years. But also, you know, it's it's marked the end of like a really tumultuous period for Warner Media where you saw things like um Filmstruck get 
uh, closed down, which was kind of a big part of that, uh, where you've seen them adopt the day and date model for um, movies going to theatres and also debuting HBO Max, which was kind of brought about as part of the pandemic, which has been kind of a mixed success for them, but certainly kind of a bold choice that seems to have uh, sort of more or less worked. Um, but also like a lot of veteran kind of film industry people in the uh, in Warner Brothers being kind of fired or moved around and then kind of destroying a lot of their relationships with various filmmakers, most notably Christopher Nolan, who has made pretty much all his movies with Warner Brothers and is now actively looking to work with other studios because of the way that they just kind of like uh, announced that they were going to put all of their movies straight to streaming without, you know, consulting with their kind of like pool of talent who have been working for the studio for years and have built up a kind of a big relationship with them. So it's very interesting as like, you know, this this uh, sudden end to an experiment that, you know, was having mixed results to begin with um, and, and is kind of like uh, represents an, another weird chapter for this, you know, venerable, iconic uh, studio that, you know, has, has been around for nearly 100 years at this point, I think. Warner mm. Brothers was... Uh, so. uh, uh, and yeah, so it's... Yeah, it's just really... Yeah, it's just a really weird, maybe predictable end to this, because I think a lot of people looked at what AT&T were doing and said, yeah, this doesn't seem like a feasible way to run a studio. Um, but still uh, surprising with just how suddenly this has come about. Yeah, I I mean, this is very much news to me because it's something that escaped mm-hmm. me in terms of the general sort of uh, channels within which I consume news, i.e. I say channels, it's just Twitter. And it went over my head, I think maybe because Eurovision was on this week. And uh, I think the best tweet that I saw about it, because I didn't really watch it, because the thing that made me sad is that I typically watch Eurovision with certain pals and I just thought, I'm just going to sit this one out. So it meant that I had a night off Twitter because the perfect tweet about it was, that's still from Rocketman where Taryn Edgerton Mm. is, (laughs) it's Elton John. I think it's Richard Madden next to him in the car and Taryn as Elton is covered in these kind of pink marabou feathers and the meme font was just over over Taryn was European Twitter and then everyone else <laughs> and it is this wild thing of where like another tweet stated you know this is when we sort of break through the American hegemony of culture for a night and I was like <laughs> that, 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 that just you know warrants Eurovision's existence for another <laughs> for mm. many years absolutely um and i think you know that was the majority of my feed so i missed this merger but i I mean it's so it's so weird and shaky and i mean we mentioned 30 rock there in terms of uh steve buscemi and as his (laughs) is his much overlooked i think uh turn as the private investigator Mm -hmm. 30 rock Mm -hmm. and 30 rock again was something that pointed at like well, we can we can joke about all of these mergers and and the conglomerate nature of things, and I'm like, I'm finding it less and less funny. Like as I rewatched yeah. Thirty Rock in the sort of earlier stages of lockdown, and it's like, but you know, it's happening, and it's something that I found with watching SNL the past couple of weeks as well, where I'm finding the jokes about Lawn being incredibly overbearing, really desperately unfunny in a pandemic. You know, it's mm. it's like. It was barely cute before, and now it's like, oh, cool, so it's an open secret, and you all know that he is practising very dangerous things work-wise, as much as some of the sketches over the past two weeks, and yes, including Elon Musk, as much as I hate to admit it, some of them are quite funny. <laughs> I don't know, so yeah, we'll... I, I think these are the sort of mergers that we find out in terms of like, it's always buried in like the business pages rather than anything that's like necessarily carried across to sort of film and TV consumers. But I feel like these kinds of mergers mm. are the things that we'll feel the ramifications of further down the line. You know, like when Focus Features yeah. was shut down and now it's like, oh cool, as, as you and I often say, you know, the mid-budget movie is now just the streaming original that's where it lives Mm. so i can't even begin to anticipate what the ramifications of this are but you know in a couple of years we'll we'll see Mm. yeah the best 
summation of this I saw, I think it was Scott Mendelson. Yeah. Mm. Uh, uh, I can't remember who he writes for, but he's very good at these kind of like business analysis stuff. But he wrote a tweet that was basically saying like, you know, for a long time now, it seemed like there's only going to be room for like four big streamers. There's going to be Netflix because they've been around for so long, Disney because they've got the brand recognition and Amazon because of the free shipping. And now the question is just how much of Hollywood has burned itself to the ground in the race to be number four. Um, oh, God. And, and that's yeah. kind of what this this feels like, you know, that the, the AT&T went all in on uh, HBO Max, which is a great service. You know, it's got a lot of great mm. stuff on there. It's probably the best of, like, all the main ones instead of Variety and its originals are good. But, like, it launched maybe when it wasn't totally ready you know it wasn't on roku for ages so people got really frustrated with that and it had like a load of technical problems at launch and it's not been kind of like managed with the view of hey this is a good way this this is like a way for people to make good works of art that you know are commercially viable it's very much been viewed as you know how do we just turn this into netflix uh, as opposed to like trying to establish their own unique brand so yeah, that's kind of like the the thing about it that I've been thinking about is like whether or not something like Sony, whose approach has basically been like, yeah, we're not going to make a streaming service because clearly we can't compete. We'll just make stuff for the streaming services. If maybe that will prove to be the more prudent approach mm-hmm. uh, in the long run to basically think, yeah, like this, these big massive companies are going to dominate everyone's time. Uh, best to kind of you know make stuff for them or to focus on making like smaller niche services than to just kind of like invest tens of billions of dollars into trying to crack that nut when there just may not be room really for anyone to fill that that fourth space Mm. so we will go on to the main topic for this week is going to be another show and tell episode where each of us brings a movie for discussion that we've seen recently and that we find particularly interesting I have brought uh, a CGI movie that everyone knows and loves that came out in the summer of 2001. I, of course, am talking about Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. uh, Of course you are. What else? What else? What else? (laughs) But but, uh, we're, of course, alluding to the firestorm that broke out over Scott Tobias' article about how Shrek is bad Um, Um, this week on Twitter. But um, that led uh, me to see a tweet by, I think it was David Grossman, who, who tweeted, like, tired... Uh, marking the 20th anniversary of the release of Shrek, Wired marking the 20th anniversary of the release of uh, Final Fantasy The Spirits Within. And that made me think, I've not seen that movie in its entirety ever, I don't think. I've only ever seen it in bits and pieces, despite generally being very pro-Final Fantasy as a, as a, as a as an enterprise. Uh, so I thought, why not check that out? And so um, for a bit of background for people who don't know, um, Final Fantasy The Spirits Within came out in 2001. It was directed by Hironoku Sakaguchi, who uh, was the kind of main creative lead on a lot of the Final Fantasy games that came out on the uh, NES in the uh, 90s and yeah, was kind of like a major force in the ones that came out subsequently on the PlayStation uh, until he left uh, Square, the company that made those games in 2004. Uh, it's kind of an environmental sci-fi, sci-fi movie, sci-fi epic. Yeah. Um, it's very similar to Princess Bononoke if instead it was set in like feudal Japan it was set in kind of like post-apocalyptic earth lots of stuff about Gaia and earth spirits um all to do with you know these group of scientists who are trying to figure out what is causing these aliens called phantoms to have overridden earth that you know when people touch them they die instantly and uh, conflicts between uh, a character called uh, Aki Ross played by Ming-Na Wen who um, is believes that she can find a peaceful solution to this and uh, the villain played by James Woods who thinks they need to have a militaristic solution and um, it's kind of very generic sci-fi kind of like conflict stuff that is also very much in keeping with the tone uh, with the, the, the themes of a lot of the Final Fantasy games up until that point and I found it to be very interesting in a number of ways. The main be- way being that um, as this kind of big all CG movie with fairly photorealistic people, um, it's a movie that still feels like something of a benchmark for trying to make realistic humans on, on screen. Um, the producers in the run-up to the movie coming out 
uh, explicitly said that they wanted this to be like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, you know, like the first mm. animated feature film movie, a movie that everyone said was a total folly and that Walt Disney was insane to try and do it, that it turned out to be like a technical breakthrough and also a huge hit. And, you know, um, they got the first part right. <laughs> it was definitely. definitely a kind of like a breakthrough. And I still think that, you know, if you compare the graphics of that movie to a lot of the subsequent attempts that people have done to tra- create photorealistic characters or in in movies or in games most of them come up short you know it's it's a very kind of like visually uh, beautiful movie the 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 environments are like really stunning and the human characters particular uh, particularly Aki Ross are just like incredibly well realized mm. um it never it just it was made a huge loss for for uh, Square Pictures, the company that produced it, and then subsequently pretty much went out of business almost immediately afterwards. It was lost a uh, huge money for Square, uh, the kind of broader video game company as well, and they were only saved by the fact that a week after it came out in theaters, Final Fantasy X came out on PlayStation Two, and uh, turned things around for them. That was really the summer of Final Fantasy, but not for the reasons necessarily that they would have hoped. And yeah, it's just, it's it's a very interesting kind of like artifact in that way, you know, like, because there are so many cases where you can point to something that was a real kind of like breakthrough in visual effects that also, you know, managed to make money. It's something like a Jurassic Park. This was trying a lot of things. It failed badly, but it still feels like a benchmark that you have to kind of measure a lot of different things against. Absolutely. And it's really strange because as someone who was like very invested in the Final Fantasy series as uh, an 11 year old when it came out, having played nine and a bit of seven and really stoked for 10, the story of Spirits Within was unlike anything Final Fantasy had ever done before. It felt closer to something like Half-Life, you know, so it was just like, Mm. oh, so Mm. you're kind of, you're in the future now. It's it's final future, not final fantasy. That's that's the difference. Mm-hmm, there was mm-hmm. absolutely no fantasy elements to it whatsoever. So we're all like, oh, okay, so your main demographic, you're essentially alienating and hoping that you can get people across. The thing that makes me sad is like looking back at it, is Aki Ross is meant to be, I mean, I think is meant to be of Chinese heritage because Ming-Na Wen is, and yet yeah. the photorealistic character just looks incredibly caucasian and that mm, and that mm. feels like a real loss like all of the characters do you know and it it feels like a sort of desperate grab to get an audience interested in something where it's not necessarily going to be so it's just yeah lots of misdirections but i i agree with you ed you can't not look at it and think like oh crikey look at the ambition kind of like ishtar or like Heaven's Gate, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's up there in terms of like, oh, this was the real kind of, well, it was a moonshot, wasn't it? And then some. Mm. Yeah, I think also the ambition just around the Aki Ross character, like it more broadly, is kind of incredible because the vision that Square had was that the character would essentially be a virtual actress that they would use in other projects like Mm. she would be in video games they would do other movies with her like it was a real kind of like attempt by them to say this is what we think a possible future of movies is like the idea of you get a real actor to portray this this character in voice and you know everything else is um is, is cg and you can, you know, age them up or down to fit the role. Would have helped with Evan Hansen if we could have virtual Ben Platt. And then they could just kind of like fit her into all these different kind of projects. And there was like a real kind of push for that stuff. You know, I was in reading up about this. Uh, the character was included in, I think, FHM's like top 100 or something <laughs> for like the year that it came out. Nice. Um, oh my God. Uh, first... Oh, no. oh uh, I remember that. Oh, they put her in a bikini. Yeah, in a bikini. Yeah. Uh, oh, weird. Mm. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. And the, um, I think the, what, like Lara Croft was in a lot yeah. as well around yeah, about yeah. that time as well. I remember being, being a big thing. Yeah. Just really weird when 
the the character in the movie they take such pains to not sexualize her at all <laughs> like she's just such a uh you know a scientist who's dedicated to her job and she's trying to do whatever she can to save the world and then the culture around it is like oh yeah let's get her in a bikini lads let's go very strange very strange choice but get yeah, like, your I think pixels is... out for the lads <laughs> apologies please continue ed um but like there is it is like one of those things where you can just see this thing is like oozing ambition like all mm. around it every aspect of it feels like something where they're really trying for something and even just like you know you were talking about how you know it's in a totally different setting to what final fantasy usually operates in like even seven you know that's all like you know kind of like steampunk rather mm. than like futuristic stuff it's, it's very different from this even that's kind of in keeping with the approach that they they always took to those games where it's like hey each one's kind of a different setting in a different world and you know there's there's things that carry over but for the most part they're all self-contained stories you know like the fact that for their big big screen outing that they spent four years making they're like yeah we're not going to have any of the characters that people know we're not going to have any of the kind of recognizable <laughs> stuff we're not even going to have a chocobo in it it's all going to be like this totally new thing like that speaks to the ambition that they had for this thing and then to look at it and kind of think, yeah, it kind of ultimately didn't really add up to much. Even though, again, in kind of reading around this, like there are various people who have cited it as kind of like a big influence. Like um, the creators of Mass Effect said that it's a movie that has um, was a big influence on them aesthetically and tonally. And also the character that Steve Buscemi plays in it, a guy called Neil uh, is pretty much exactly the same as the character Seth Green plays in Mass Effect, the character of Joker, um, like sarcastic pilot who's always there, kind of like in the background quipping, like exactly the same irritating character. And you look at that and go, oh, yeah, I see where you got that influence. And I, but I also think it's maybe one of the best illustrations of the uncanny valley that you're likely to find, mm. like more so than some of the more popularly cited ones like um the polar express or, or or beowulf because they go so extreme in the trying to make them photorealistic like all of the people do genuinely look like real particularly Akiros, who they spent so much like time and effort on but you look at them and there is still this sort of like not quite real generic quality to it like alec baldwin's character just looks like the default hero from a video game like before you've messed with the sliders um <laughs> and i think the they've really kind of tripped themselves up by for the most part casting people with really recognizable voices so like when when alec baldwin's character talks you like that guy doesn't look anything like Alec Baldwin. Like, you can't hear that distinctive voice coming from another kind of, like, fairly realistic-looking person mm. and not think that there's some weird disconnect there compared to, you know, like, uh, I think Ming-Na Wen kind of comes out of it better than a lot of the cast just because, like, she doesn't necessarily have that kind of, like, instantly recognisable voice, so she can disappear into the character a lot more and she has this, like earnestness to her that really suits the material everyone else like you hear their voice and you instantly think that's 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 not right like they should make the characters look like the actors more to kind of make this work because there's just something really distracting about having these pretty much photorealistic character uh, uh, characters have voices that just don't fit them absolutely it kind of reminds me of that um wonderful sketch in the sack lunch bunch with mm-hmm. John Mulaney as the kind of kids film executive so yeah. <laughs> testing the screen audience and you know did you know who the voice was and they all sort of do <laughs> they're much more mm-hmm. literate mm-hmm. now and yeah there's just I mean yeah uncanny valley is true on like every level to the point where it's like the sound and vision don't feel synced because yeah. there's such a yeah. chasm between them yeah, it's it's incredible. It's an incredibly strange watch, I think, for a movie that is in in story fairly kind of like generic and not that strange. You know, like some of the creature designs cool, but for the most part, you look at it and think this this could be any story. It would doesn't have to be. It, it, there's nothing in it that makes you think, yeah, this is Final Fantasy. And I I think one of the things that I I, I think is kind of sad about that is that this feels like 
the last time that they had that kind of huge ambition for their work because immediately after this you know like final fantasy 10 comes out and that's a great game and it's very successful but then immediately after that they do final fantasy x2 we've started to have to do sequels because this lost a lot of money and we need to kind of have a lot of sure things and um in like more recent years like the stuff they've done with final fantasy 14 you know all the online stuff's like very innovative but it definitely felt as if this felt like um the end of something for final fantasy as a franchise where they had really kind of gone from being this thing where every go round felt like a seismic event for for at least a few years you know Um, seven to it kind of fading a little bit into the background until it it resurfaced you know significantly in the last couple of years with the with the mmo stuff um and i do wonder what would have happened if this had been a decent hit and they'd made more maybe not more fun and fancy movies but more movies with this technology like how different would the trajectory of square have been um yeah that that's something that i find really interesting to consider that's such a good question because i hadn't even really considered the synergy of square enix and square pictures obviously and i'd completely forgotten how spirits within and final fantasy 10 slash x came out like within a whisper of each other and being so yeah. disappointed by spirits within and yet Final Fantasy X became my life, as I have already um, mm-hmm. admitted mm-hmm. on this here podcast that I did a lot of fan fiction solely on Final Fantasy X for a while. And because um, it was just such a rich world and it was just like, oh my God, there is sound, there are voices. I mean, listening mm-hmm. to, to Tidus's laugh, maybe that was a that was an error. <laughs> but yeah, you're right in terms of like the technology, it's a shame that they basically went all in on that instead of focusing on story and characters that I think is what Final Fantasy did to set itself apart as a game. Yeah. Like the technology was always incredible, yeah. but they never forgot the story. And I think I learned so much about storytelling and characters from Final Fantasy as a game. And that the mm, film just yeah. fell completely flat and, and was just generic. So it was like the ambition wasn't met on all in all points of what it was trying to do. It was just like, oh well, if we if we wow enough people with the spectacle, the story doesn't matter, which just goes against the very core of what Final Fantasy did in the first place. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So what have you got for us, Emily? Oh, so I have for you, uh, and and everyone this week, uh Kresha which is uh, mm. Trey Edward Schultz's debut film, 2015. And it had been on my radar, I think, because I watched a trailer for it a few years ago in the cinema for something else. And it just left me with this like indelible feeling of tension. And mm-hmm. this kind of... I didn't forget it. So when I logged into my movie account and saw that it was leaving in 11 days, I was like, oh no, I have to watch this. And I really appreciate that there is a time, (laughs) there's a time limit. And I will, for the most part on streaming services, look at what is leaving soonest, Mm. because that does give you the sort of, the good push to actually kind of, uh, that, that cuts through decision fatigue, like a nice bit of lemon in some cream. And, uh, I do not regret it at all. It is intense. And what I find really interesting is that if you were to sort of type in Kresha uh, into your Google search bar, one of the most asked questions is, is Kresha a horror film? Mm. Which I think is such a pertinent question to ask because no one really seems to be able to hit on a genre for it. The kind of main, yeah. the, the, the main slash is drama comedy, but I think it's one of the least funny films I've ever seen. And I don't mean that to say mm. that it's humorless. I think it's one of the most accurate depictions of addiction I've ever seen. And that trade with Schultz is like 27 when he makes this, mm. it's his first film. Mm. It stars his real life aunt, as his mother and it's an incredibly claustrophobic film because it is set essentially over a thanksgiving day 
with a in a in a family in Texas, quite a big family, and you learn as you go. And I think it's just so alive at every single second. And it's such a beautiful and multifaceted portrait of addiction because Cresha is essentially an an unreliable narrator. And at every point you understand her buttons and, and <clears throat> why she's being pushed in her environment, but you also understand the part that she in which she doesn't help herself. So I think it's incredibly balanced in that way where it manages to capture the nuance of a dysfunctional family unit, which has many different moving parts within it. It's simultaneously like unbearably realistic performances with a camera style and movement that is simultaneously like interrogating and brutal and stylized and it just gets across the sort of heat of a really tense family gathering which I think every human being has had at one point or another in their lives um <clears throat> at least once if not many so in a way i'm like <clears throat> well, well yeah it kind of is a horror film because we're constantly on edge and a monster sort of reveals itself and it's not necessarily Crescia herself it is more about what happens when all of these people come together that's the monster. That's the kind of ghost of the machine of their dynamic. But Cresha um, Fairchild, who is Trey Edward Schultz's aunt in real life, but his his mother plays his aunt. So there's this kind of weird sort of switch around and it's still a little bit shady in terms of uh, my research on it of like quite how autobiographical it is or what the kind of makeup of it is. But... As far as I'm aware, Cresha Fairchild is the only professional actor of the lot of them. And, you know, this was her big break at 65 because of her nephew. Mm -hmm. So there's so many different like elements to it. But Cresha Fairchild is phenomenal. It's like a Jenna Rowland style performance. And I mean, it's no wonder that it won the independent, uh, the independent spirit John Cassavetes Award because there's so much Cassavetes in it. But there's also this kind of like almost European sensibility of like Hanukkah or mm. like Yorgos Lanthimos. It reminded me a lot of him in terms of this kind of absurd perspective on something that could be seen as very domestic, but is actually like simmering the whole way through. So I thought it was incredible. I just loved it. I think it's like, you know, it's a big contrast from <laughs> spirits within because it is something quite, you know, immediate, semi-autobiographical maybe, or at least an incredibly uh, immediate human experience. But it's made for about $30,000, I think, and did very well on the festival circuit. And again, if you are in, if you, if you have a movie account, and if you don't, I really recommend that you do. I, I think it's one of the best streaming services out there. Um, although I am, of course, biased towards it for various different reasons. But it's around for, I think, another week in the UK. I'm not sure where it's showing el elsewhere in terms of movie and its territories around the world. But it's also based on a short film um, that Schultz did, which I haven't tracked down yet. And I'd be really interested to see the difference between what the short covers and what the feature covers. But if you want mm. a really bracing 90 minutes that actually does feel kind of like a horror film, I can't recommend it enough. Yeah, I, I really love movies that tread that line or, or or even like plays or whatever that you walk away from it and you're like, I'm not entirely sure how I would describe that to people because when you were talking about people wondering if uh, Creature is a, is a horror movie, it started making me think about like like Harold Pinter. Mm. Um, mm. Because I was thinking particularly about the play, his like two-act play, The Dumbwaiter. Um which is like two 
uh, hitmen kind of like hanging around and talking, waiting for a job to kind of happen. Where it's kind of a it's kind of a comedy in some ways, like it's just these two guys talking, but also there's such a sense of menace to it, and there's such a sense of uncertainty and of violence that may or may not happen to it that you just end up kind of with this real sense of palpable dread the whole time but you would not say this is a horror work of horror necessarily you would just say this is something that feels that fills you with like a feeling of being scared and that's something that is very rare and something that i always find really exciting when someone like really carries it off another example uh would be something like uh bronson the uh nicholas bendy greffin film which is very funny very entertaining but also anytime tom hardy is like doing direct address to the audience you feel or something i feel incredibly scared and kind of on some level you start to think is he going to jump out of the screen and chase me? Because <laughs> mm. that seems like the 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 veil between fiction and reality seems especially thin at this moment, and I feel very scared. And I think that that is uh, an incredible thing to see someone realise, to, to, to present you with something that on its face doesn't seem like you would necessarily qualify as a horror film, but just through atmosphere and mood and performance you walk away like really shaken up by it another good example uh the vanishing the original vanishing not the the terrible american one there where they gave it a dumb ending um uh, uh the the danish movie i think mm. um that's a movie where like there's nothing outwardly horrifying that happens in it you know like there's no violence there's no blood it's just really fucking scary <laughs> mm. yeah it's just if you have enough menace and it is that real kind of like Hanukkah level of you can you can be as in on it as he mm-hmm. lets you be and yet it's still there's no let up yeah uh Amour would be another one as well to like talk about like Hanukkah um like Amour is is not outwardly a horror movie it's just about two two old people trying to kind of like get by but the kind of rigor with which he approaches it leaves you kind of really kind of shaken to your core or uh, you know a favorite of yours and mine that we always seem to discuss the white ribbon is another one where like you know there's not a huge amount of stuff in that movie that takes place on screen that's particularly horrifying but there is just such an air of impending doom over the whole thing in a kind of like immediate sense of like what is going to happen to these characters and then in the broader sense of like oh all of these children grow up to be adults in the 40s that's going to end up well for everyone. <laughs> mm. Maybe there's a, there's a rot at the heart of this this nation. Oh, big time. Uh, what are some other kind of examples that you can think of of like movies from shorts that you know you think translate particularly well? Because when you were talking about the the short for for creature, you know, that the, the ended up becoming a, a a feature, I instantly thought of um, Bottle Rocket the mm. Wes Anderson movie where you know you have this incredibly fun scrappy little black and white short that he he and Owen Wilson kind of like put together with twine and you know it's just like them kind of like carrying out a robbery and it's just this really fun little thing and then you know they very successfully expanded it out into something of a fuller work a fuller comedy um not amongst his best in in my opinion but still like a really good interesting kind of like calling card of a movie and i feel like there is it's very it's it's a very hard transition i think to make for a lot of filmmakers where you can lose something that was so kind of like special about you know the thing that you made that was 15 to 20 minutes long when you have to fill it out to a full 90 minutes something like um Sling Blade, I think, kind of suffers from that. Where wow. that's a a movie where it's an incredibly effective short film of Billy Bob Thornton essentially just talking to camera. But when you have to kind of like fill it out into a feature, it kind of feels like there's a lot of extraneous stuff added in because they're like, man, we've got to get this up to ninety minutes. Yeah, it's a real tricky one because I think like either a short film has a strong enough premise that when you come to take it to a longer running time, that really carries. 
or mm-hmm. it's a short film that is ends up just being a gimmick mm-hmm. and it's really hard mm-hmm. to tell yeah. and, and, until you dive in and actually take that risk and make it a feature length you know and I think such an interesting question because we've spoken a little bit before about you know running times and things like that and that short films aren't really presented to film audiences and that they're more like they're more like CVs or resumes as they say on your side of the pond Ed of Mm -hmm. like I can make a good looking film and I can tell a story over a little point and it feels somewhere between us you know a bit more than a scissor reel a bit less risk than a full-length film and I think the ones that really spring to mind that have also that I think are good short films in their own right but that also carried over very well I mean the one that always comes to mind for me is Doggle Together that became Tyrannosaur oh yeah yeah and I think having watched the original short and then watched the film it's like oh there is like a DNA that they share and you know it's the difference between you know looking at a cell under a microscope and then seeing the whole organism like something just carries through Mm. and I think because it centers on those two characters that are played by the original actors and in the short and in the film and there's something in terms of that development that just really carries and even though I haven't seen the full-length film a short that has always stuck with me and again coming back to the kind of horror genre is Mama Oh yeah, yeah. Which Guillermo del Toro really sort of pushed for, and I think I want to say was actually a sort of B slash short film prior to a longer film of Guillermo del Toro's, but I can't remember. But I remember watching it in the cinema and being like scared witless because it was so so well done in terms of like how you use cinematic techniques to scare people, and I think sometimes there was a really interesting link between comedy and horror because so much of it is about tension, release and timing. So Mm, a lot of people are like, am I amused by this? (laughs) Because it's just so intense. And and coming back to Cretia, that kind of drama comedy label that it's been given, is I think because there there are some moments which are so excruciating you can't help but laugh to try and relieve your own tension. And I think the film encourages mm. you to do that because it's genius in terms of how it handles its ensemble as well in a very realistic way of, well, there's also this character who is the uh, the brother-in-law who drinks a lot, but no one criticises him because apparently he doesn't have substance issues. And, mm. you know, the younger generation who are still just having like a day and trying to say like oh when when can we get away from everyone and be intimate even though we have a baby and like you know all this kind of stuff so there are moments that that do relieve your attention but you also think well a lot of these people are quite self-involved and you know in the same way that I think you know I keep going back to Hanukkah but the Hanukkah is always kind of like well there's a sense of knowing to this and the white ribbon, as brutal as it is, almost at the end, you're like, well, I kind of have to laugh at how horrendous that was because what else can I do to save myself psychically? <laughs> because it's just mm. relentlessly mm. bleak. And I think it does, you know, horror and comedy have that sort of link in terms of, well, we're, we're, in, we're facing the absurdity of things head on. And, mm. this, kind of, and this kind of exaggeration and this grotesqueness that we that we experience as human beings. Yeah. Yeah. And and they both have a they they elicit kind of a physical reaction from you in the sense of like you I laugh or you scream, or you know, even if it's just the like the mild endorphins of something being slightly funny, or the kind of like the sudden shock where you just kind of go <gasps> and then kind of like laugh at yourself for being scared by mm. the thing that happened on the screen that can't hurt you. Mm. Um, they're both kind of like tied to our physiological and, and psychological responses in a way that, that drama is as well. But like, I think drama is like a, a harder thing to really work at and do well. Yeah. Like, yeah, maybe you'll make someone cry, but like it's, that's still like, that's a tougher thing I think to elicit than, um a laugh or a or a or a scare i completely and... agree there's something there's something quite passive about drama in a way i think because drama mm. often leans towards tragedy 
that there's yeah. a sense of inevitability towards it. So there's nothing you can do. Whereas both comedy and horror, you're right. Like I've I've read various uh, evolutionary theories on laughter, which say that it's a modified scream. So a scream comes mm. first, apparently, and then laughter is the modification. Like in Monsters Inc. Exactly, <laughs> just like Monsters Inc. Like I mean. When I say I read evolutionary theory, I mean, <laughs> I watched Monsters, Inc. Mm. But I think mm. there's something about both of them that just involve you and your perspective as a witness that's more active and more thrilling. And I think that was, again, mm. like coming back to Final Fantasy and the Spirits Within. There's something very strange about game adaptations where you are essentially very passive. That's just frustrating yeah. and that, that just always feels lacking. And I think, again, coming back to like Dear Evan Hansen or like anything that you watch that is recorded or an adaptation of a live show, it's really hard not to lose something in translation. Because as someone who was fortunate enough to be able to see Hamilton live when it was in London's West End, I made a special trip. Um, <laughs> and, and just the sheer force and dynamism of that. And it's not to do down the recording of it whatsoever, because I think it does as well as a recording can do to capture the sheer energy of everyone on stage because no one seems to get a break. Everyone is on for the entirety of that show, but you mm. don't feel it in your body. And I think that's something that I'm so aware of, you know, <laughs> throughout the pandemic is I thought I was so much more passive watching films than I realised. And I am, I am super jealous that you got to see a film in a room with other people and other bodies and, and, and have that something that's literally larger than life in front of you. Mm, yeah. And I, I was glad that it kind of felt, it, de it generally did feel like just like a, a return to normalcy. Like it didn't feel like, mm. Oh, this feels so strange or this feels like, you know, like, so such an overwhelming experience. It felt very much just kind of like, Oh, like it's nice that I'm doing this again. It's nice to be back, back at it. And something that I, I think I'm going to try and do more of, because like, not that I'd fallen off from going to see movies entirely, but um, in the last few years, like, I definitely feel as if I haven't been seeing as many movies in the theatres as I could have, just kind of like losing track of time and things like that, and not kind of maybe making the effort. So uh, I think I'm going to try and do that more and more in the months ahead, uh, depending on the quality of the movies. Some of the pickings at the moment, pretty slim. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say. Um, not the, the big the big boys aren't necessarily taking the taking a swings at the uh, the ball just yet um but i'm sure it'll it'll improve soon so we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes with shot reverse shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week i don't want to say too much about it because i think the actual experience of listening to it is very important and everyone will have their own response to it but in terms of like a very strong content warning the most recent episode of beautiful anonymous chris gethard's mm. podcast which i know i've recommended before but i wanted to recommend this episode in particular called saved by the meow i listened to it today whilst i was walking and i found myself like crying in the street and and not out of pity i mean the strong content warning is because it has you know consistent mentions of child sexual abuse abuse from family members suicide all of it and yet you know the caller and chris gethard are just in this really beautiful symbiotic sort of compassion and there's no mm. sense that it feels like you know, there's any sense of like lionization or or anything, but just the sheer relief that the caller seems to feel with Chris Gethard, just like giving him that space and listening and being like, just reassuring him that life is really hard. And it's not that he is wrong. It's just that life is hard. So, you know what? I think, yeah, I think it's essential listening. The most recent episode of Beautiful Anonymous, Saved by the Meow. Great. 
I am going to recommend a manga that I have been reading uh, this past week. Uh, there's sad news that uh, Kentaro Miura, who is a, a manga artist who uh, was responsible for the manga Berserk, which has mm. been running so, since the late 80s, I think, Good. and sort of intermittently. Um, but it's been, he's been writing and drawing that for this entire time. And uh, I had never read his work before, but when people were sharing the news and they were sharing kind of panels of, of, of his work on Berserk, I thought, man, this looks really cool and really beautiful. I should check this out. And really gory. It's very violent, very violent uh, story. And so I went out and I picked up um, the collection of the first kind of few volumes of it. And uh, it's a really remarkable piece of work. It's incredibly, as I said, very violent, very kind of like bleak story of a swordsman called Guts going around this kind of medieval fantasy realm. And it's like incredibly dynamic. The action scenes in it are just like so beautifully composed and he does amazing things where he's trying to kind of mix sort of cinematic techniques into his, his visuals with like different panel images in panels kind of like blending into each other. So it, it all feels like very dynamic and creative and really kind of inventive uh, consistently. He's, he's, he was a really great kind of um, visual storyteller. Um, but also the one of the things as well about it that was just really great for me was that it suddenly unlocked kind of this sudden realization for me of where like an entire strain of aesthetics in video games come from because so many video games that come out of Japan um, you know, Final Fantasy being one of them or Dragon Quest or, or Dark Souls they have all of the, this aesthetic of like oh it's a medieval world where there's like characters who are knights wandering around with big swords and I always wondered like where did this come from what was the fascination with medieval society in Europe and then reading this book it means immediately I was like oh this is where it comes from like this this one manga has like influenced an entire generation of artists in this entire medium and you can just see so much of like the dark souls or something like you know the character of cloud strife in uh final fantasy 7 where you know a character walking around with just a massive fuck off sword on his back and there was kind of like a nice full circle for this uh in our, our, our general discussion which was that in final fantasy 14 the uh, online game this week uh people paid tribute for this by taking their their knight characters that they have and just kind of like lining them up in a row and just kind of having tributes so there's all these videos of like thousands of people just standing in this game in tribute to this this man whose work meant a huge amount to them and i found that to be uh, incredibly moving and a, a lovely tribute to a great artist so that's my recommendation check out berserk there are plenty of paperback uh, you know there are trade paperbacks out there and dark horse have put out these really lovely like massive hardback versions that have just come out and you can see it on comiXology uh it's just it's just really uh impactful great pulp storytelling and and well worth checking out if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player from spotify all the usual places raters reviewers and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast we're back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me